Content warnings for this episode include a discussion of queer phobia during the real-life church horror story and a discussion about white supremacy and racism during the deep dive. listening to Horror Nerds at Church, a ridiculously queer podcast where we take a deep dive into a horror film and talk about what it can teach us about God, the Bible, and each other. I'm Emily, and I am the pyrotechnic explosion in the movie theater. Love it. I'm Pace, and I am the weird love that all of these gremlins have for Snow White that makes no sense. Haha, <laughs> capitalism. And I am JR, and I am the final day in a very obscure horror movie that we all know the name of. I love it. Perfect. Um, so thank you, Emily, as our guest co-host, and for leading us in. Yay! Uh, from Nerds at Church, we all know and love. Um, do we have any announcements or anything? I can't think of anything. Oh, this is Christmas day this episode's releasing happy so i guess christmas. merry christmas everybody yay happy yeah. christmas <laughs> um but beyond that i can't think of anything is there anything special going on at nerds that church people should listen to Ooh, there is actually we just had for advent four we had my religion prof on but for christmas one we are talking about deacons we're doing a deep dive into deacons so Ooh. that is coming up technically tomorrow so when this when this comes out awesome love yeah. it how have y'all been um are you gonna do a bio a bio i should um so jr introducing our good friend jr uh jr and i have known each other for like i don't want to say how long but many many years uh we met in college at teal college where um in dr hall's english class in greenville uh room what 102 or whatever that room was uh so we we go back a long time uh you can already listen to this is why i didn't think of a bio because you can already listen to jr um on our patreon doing our double feature episodes for this month Ooh. which we recorded together so definitely if you uh ha are not a patreon subscriber please subscribe to that but jr uh ha i guess um you live in california now in socal but uh when we met we were all from pennsylvania area but why don't you introduce the audience to yourself by talking a little bit about like your love for horror movies this is one of the things that jr and i when we met at teal bonded over two things like right away the first thing we bonded over was music i was wearing a nirvana's a nirvana hat with beatles shirt or maybe it was vice versa and so that's yeah, one of the things I'll... that you talked to me about yeah and then the other thing was horror movies so uh yeah why don't you go in a little bit into yeah. the horror your love for horror movies and all those things you know, I actually 
can't really recall the exact moment. I think I was, came out of the womb, like, obsessed before. <laughs> but I, um, honestly, I, I think it was always something that I sought out. I always sought out, like, the more, you know, crazy stories. I always liked ghosts. I always liked hearing about, like, supernatural beings or whatever. So I think it's just been a part of me since the beginning. And uh, I think when uh, we were at Teal, we always had a weekend um, double features of horror movies. Uh, it, it was like a, an event that we always look forward to at the end of the week. So, you know, we, still, we still try, you know, to get together and, and co-watch, you know, but uh, here we are. Like, some of the some of my favorite horror movies and also some of the worst but some of my favorite horror movies i saw for the first time with you like midsummer is one of those that we watched together i think for the first time over the internet of course but like since they live in california and stuff but um and then one of the movies we saw in theaters i remember which we both hated was the nightmare on elm street remake from 2010 yeah which was an adventure yeah yeah, I think uh, what's the one? Um, I'm, I think it was uh, we had um, what was it? Sorry, I, I I'm going blank, but um, yeah. I'm trying to think of the Exorcist. I believe it was when uh, we had a group of people over, and um, we had the one um, copy where they like had the little demon faces yeah. in where Pazuzo shows up or whatever the name is. Yeah, and then um, I think it was my roommate that like kept trying to get us to turn it off, and uh, the boyfriend actually turned off the TV. And do you yep. remember that? It was like it was one of those common occurrences that happened every time we try to watch a movie. Like somebody would freak yeah. out because either you know they turn off the TV or try to steal our snacks or whatever. Mm. But you know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, one of the one of the um things we'll have to talk about one day is like the real life horror of that living situation, like when your roommate's boyfriend threw away the paper that you wrote into the trash and stuff. It was just a mess. Oh God. Yeah. I I think that was like the first time I had been really angry, and I was trying so hard not to like. <laughs> go crazy but uh yeah he he just had no consideration he, yeah that was that was, that was a good yeah. time so a question we normally ask everybody is if they have a real life church horror story um but you already submitted to our real life church horror story uh minisode in season one so maybe i'll link that in the show notes uh, so people can go back and listen to that about the crucifix dream. But is there any other story that's coming to mind you want to get into? Any other real life church horror stories? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the stories I submitted were about my experience growing up uh, Catholic. But um, there was a period of time when I moved to California. Um, I was, you know, seeking um, community and uh, friends or whatever, and uh, 
one of the first things that people do when you move into an area, especially around here, is they try to find out what church you belong mm-hmm. to, you know, what religion and they try to invite you to come to the church, you know, whatever. But, um, uh, non-denominational evangelicalism <laughs> is, like, really big in this area, and, um, it, it was, uh, going from one, like, I mean, growing up Catholic, it's like a very ritualistic ordeal, right? And then going into where they issue, the, um, you know, rituals, but they do have their own rituals and practices, and it's very cult-like. <laughs> like, uh, uh, I remember doing a Bible study, and um, they started talking about Russia. This is like, um, I think it was 2014, uh-huh. 2015. And they were talking about how um, Russia had the practice of jailing the, um, you know, LGBTQ citizens. I remember one one person specifically like started like talking about how the U.S. should be like Russia and start knocking down, um, <laughs> knocking on people's doors and you know jailing anybody that was suspected of being gay or whatever. And yeah, I remember that being like, oh, what am I doing here again? I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> I had a similar experience when I um, was in my first call as a pastor in a southern suburb of Salt Lake City in Utah. I lived in the apartments in that were closest to the church building where I worked, and it was the cheapest place to live out of any of the areas. And I got so many people knocking on my door, and it was like obviously LDS missionaries, both the like elders and the sisters um, who had very different responses to me saying, hi, I'm Pastor Emily. Um, But then also got like, Nandanam later found out was a cult, people knocking on my door and like so many people knocking on the door and particularly I think because of the economic reality of most of the people in the apartment complex because that's easy prey for churches and cults to be like oh come we have prosperity gospel we will tell you everything will be fine if you follow these very strict rules about what you're allowed to do and who you're allowed to be (laughs) right just oh yeah that's a whole other kind of horror for sure for real for real and now comes that fun part where we transition from real life horror to fictional horror in a not at all awkward way. Yay. Because <laughs> pace makes it very awkward. <laughs> but um, we're watching the movie Gremlins, 1984, directed by Joe Dante. Uh, what was everyone's first experience seeing this one? Um, we'll start with you, JR. When's the first time you saw uh, Gremlins? Um, you know, it's probably like a Saturday when um, you know, when I was young, because I feel like this came out in 1984, yeah. right? So it was probably like you know, seven, eight, 
like, like with on cable, and I just watched it and was uh, immediately drawn in by um, <laughs> Gizmo. Gizmo's adorable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I I first watched it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I am I am the weird horror nerds at church guest co-host who doesn't actually like horror movies. Um, so Pace and I watched it as part of our Advent movie calendar that we are doing, um, which could give some hints as to when we are actually recording this compared to when it's airing. Um, but yeah, so I watched it yesterday and similar to you was totally drawn into Gizmo by Gizmo. Who reminded me of like Furbies, right? Like which came first, yeah. the Furby or the Gizmo? The Gizmo came first, or the Magba. Which is very funny because there, when Furbies first came out, it drew a lot of comparisons as to like whether or not they were ripping off of um, the Gremlin mm. look or not. But Interesting. Yeah, the only real difference is the ears. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think is hilarious. My sister. Well, I guess I should answer when I saw this first. So I saw this, this is one of those movies I grew up on, so I can't really place when I first saw it. But um, it, 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 there's some debate as to whether or not this is horror. By now, people listening to our podcast know that we're paced stands on thing, this very broad definition of horror. Mm-hmm. But I mean, a lot of people kind of see this as like this family friendly like lighthearted movie but it's actually pretty like dark and horrific in many ways so i'm surprised mm-hmm. it has that reputation i mean i know gizmo is adorable but like th- there's a lot of scary stuff about it yeah but um uh, my sister jenna her dog is named gizmo after this movie oh. and so when she got gizmo uh, a rescue dog and she renamed him gizmo um we started making a j- uh, we we started making a joke about how all of our dogs are gremlins and how Gandalf, <laughs> especially with his ears, looks very much like one of the more lizard-like gremlins at the end mm-hmm. of the movie, <laughs> more lizard-like Mogwai. So, um, uh, yeah, so we have three little gremlins. Uh, in, well, I guess four if we uh, count Yoshi and all that. But, like, yeah, four little gremlins running around. But Gandalf, I think, looks the most like a gremlin out of all of them. Um, I guess we'll get into some of the background for this uh, movie. So, Christopher Columbus of Harry Potter and Home Alone fame. Speaking of Home Alone, that is one of our double feature movies. So, if you like that movie, go become a Patreon supporter and listen to JR and I talk about Home Alone. Um, I forgot that you said, you mentioned that that was going to be one. I, I've been meaning to become a Patreon supporter for a while now. It's overdue. I'm going to need to do that. Okay. <laughs> yes, please. Join me. Um, and then, yeah, and then you can also listen to Emily's episode on Doctor Who, where they're the co-hosts of Doctor Who. Um, YouTube. Yes. But, uh, yeah, so Chris Columbus uh, conceived of this idea inspired by the World War II gremlins of RAF for Royal Air Force legend. So he wrote, so there's this actual legend about World War II era pilots uh, who would often have mechanical difficulties and they would blame them on gremlins. So that's where this whole notion of gremlins comes from. Uh, so he wrote a spec script, which in Hollywood is just this 
script that you write just to show off your writing ability. It's not necessarily meant to be produced, but more like more like an example of what you're capable of. Mm-hmm. But Steven Spielberg saw it, liked it, and bought it, and put Joe Dante on it to direct it. Um, and you can kind of see Steven Spielberg's fingerprints all over this movie, even though he wasn't the director, he just produced it. One of the things that he did was turn Gizmo was supposed to turn evil, just like the rest of the gremlins. When he, and he was going to eat after midnight, and he was going to turn into the evil gremlin and be the leader of the gremlins. But Steven Spielberg saw how cute Gizmo was as they were like marking, making him, uh, ma- made the puppet for him and stuff. So they he said that there's a lot of marketing potential here for kids. Like mm-hmm. let's not turn the cute little gremlin into the villain. So they um wanted gizmo to stay good throughout the film uh so this is why in the second half of the film gizmo spends almost the entire film part of that movie in the backpack backpack, billy's backpack because it's just easy for them (laughs) instead of rewriting the whole second half of the script they just like throw him in a book bag and then he'll come we they rewrote the end so he has a little bit of a role in the finale but like (laughs) that's why most of the second part of the movie is in a book bag um the movie is also in part responsible for PG-13 because this movie is rated PG along with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was rated PG uh, also um, huh. by Steven Spielberg. They're released uh, and and um, there's a lot of controversy because this is like, this is a PG film. Why is this PG? Um, but it's also not quite R. So Steven Spielberg and a few other directors petitioned the MPAA to create kind of in between and that's how pg-13 came about Hmm. um this movie was also released the same weekend as the original ghostbusters film which is another 1980s supernatural horror comedy so you can kind of see that there's something in the air creating these supernatural horror comedy films um and then there's a sequel to this gremlins 2 the new batch which is just completely wild and bonkers i heard it was horrible i love it but (laughs) It depends on like what you're going into it for. Like <laughs> Gremlins Two is a self parody. So like if you're into like this meta like meta humor where a movie's making fun of itself and kind of knowing it is, then mm-hmm. Gremlins Two is a great movie for you. But if you're going in expecting it to be like a true follow up to the first one, it's nothing like it. Hmm. So good to know. But um there's also a HBO Max show coming out in the next year. Or maybe it moved to Cartoon Network. I couldn't find out for sure. But called Gremlin's Secret of the Mogwai. It's supposed to be an origin story for where the Mogwai come from. Apparently they come from outer space. Uh, it's going to take place in China and basically show Gizmo being like Gizmo's backstory about before he came to America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's supposed to come out next year. We'll see what happens that then. Uh, Last thing um, is that this movie is part of Corey Feldman's Rising Star. So he was in Friday the 13th, the final chapter in 1984, where he played Tommy Jarvis. Uh, he was then in Gremlins, where this movie where he played Pete Fontaine. Then he was in Friday the 13th, The New Beginning, where he reprised the role of Tommy Jarvis. Then he was in The Goonies, then Stand By Me, then The Lost Boys. So like back to back all these films. And that's kind of what made him really blow up in the 80s. We have done four of these films in this season alone. So that's like how big of a like presence Corey Feldman is in 80s horror. So, um, 
Uh, any other background stuff that either of you found? Um, let's see. I mean, you mentioned that uh, series coming out about the backstory of the Mogwai. And, uh, yeah, I pretty much found the same thing. And, um, like, there was a scientist that created these beings. And then um, also I found out that um, it has the tying mm. with the water. Apparently, on this outer space planet, whatever environment, um, they re- they reproduce during rainy season. Oh, that mm. would make sense. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of like an interesting yeah. little <laughs> tidbit. Like, okay, don't, don't give them water so they don't reproduce. So, yeah. you know, something... there you go. Uh, Emily, you kind of mentioned some of these two as we were watching it, but there's something to be said about the inconsistency and impracticality of the rules for these gremlins. Because, like, A, first of all, what do they drink then? Like, do they not drink anything? Do they get all their nutrients from food? I don't know. But then also, I think it was you who pointed out how they're, like, in the snow, but apparently that's not watery enough to cause them to reproduce, so... And, like, there's water <laughs> particles in the air. So it seems like it's only liquid forms of water that actually. Yeah. Yeah, but they could have beer. Because they would that soon. Yeah. That's what I'm the They're drinking beer. Beer's mostly water, but apparently that's fine. <laughs> so it has to be, that's like, true. pure water. So then does that mean, like, tap water? Is that pure enough? Because it has certain, like, particles and stuff in it from. I don't know. These are the questions. These are the real questions. Come on. Yeah, they let us know what's going on here, Chris Columbus. Um, oh, and then also the eating after midnight. It, a lot of people have brought this up, but like, it's always after midnight at some point. So like, when does that mm-hmm. cut off? Like, is it between midnight and six a.m.? Like, is it between midnight and when the sun comes up? Like, please explain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And time zones. Like, if you change time zones, is it... It's clearly, like, if they come from mainland China, then clearly it's not just a question of, like, if it's midnight in the place of their origin. But, like, if you move, then does it switch to being, like, 10 or 11 or... The general clocks change upon the location. Right. It's, like... It's like how the iPhone will update to the new location automatically whenever you go into a new time zone. The gremlins do too. They have an internal eye. Um, they're, they're linked to the cellular data network, which is how they're able to link their time. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, well, let's just go right into this. So let's see. Uh, this movie had Hoyt Axton as kind of doing this like voiceover which is kind of a weird feature of the film but rest in peace Hoyt Axon first of all but he plays Randall Peltzer who is Mm. um this inventor he's peddling his inventions and wanders into a store in China town hoping to get his son Billy played by Zach Galligan a Christmas present there he encounters a mogwai named Gizmo, an adorable creature that looks like a cuter prototype version of a Furby, exactly like you're saying, Emily. Um, Randall tries to buy Gizmo, but the store um, owner, Mr. Wing, refuses to sell him his grant- 
grandson secretly sells Gizmo to Randall and tells him the three rules. Sunlight is lethal. Two, don't let it come into contact with water. And three, don't feed it after midnight. Uh, Corey Feldman plays a neighborhood kid who comes over and accidentally knocks water onto Gizmo, uh, causing a batch of additional Mogwai to be born. They instantly are already acting differently and more chaotically than Gizmo. Uh, there's a side plot where Billy takes one of them to Mr. Hansen, played by Glenn Terman, and runs some experiments on them. But anyway, long story short, they play a trick on Billy to feed them after midnight. All of them eat aside from Gizmo, and Billy wakes up to the next morning of all of them in the was it pupil stage i can't remember the exact stage he said yeah yeah um so they're giant gross eggs really gross uh (laughs) the eggs they kind of look like the eggs from alien if you've ever seen that movie but they hatch eventually and then they run rampant over town i feel like if you know alignment chart like the gremlins are like full-on chaotic evil like yep that is just their entire personality is chaotic evil um so uh there's a bar scene which is pretty fun where phoebe cates who's kind of the love interest for billy um is like this bar scene lasts for like 10 minutes and it's just her Mm -hmm. all these little sight gags of the gremlins doing different things it's just kind of adorable until Um, she like tries to light their cigarettes yeah (laughs) um and then uh, there's a drop subplot. So there's this guy named Gerald Hopkins who also works at the bank with Billy. There's a drop subplot there. There's a lot of like cut scenes to kind of tone da- tone it down the violence a little bit to make mm. it more friend- family friendly. But apparently Gerald was supposed to, co- he plays like this kind of jerky son of the owner of the bank and he's supposed to get his comeuppance um, by the gremlins, but they dropped that scene. Disappointing. Right. Capitalist um, comeuppance is my favorite part of horror. Right. Although there is a very good capitalist comeuppance scene in here with Mrs. Deagle getting That's on this. True. Yeah. So she, I, I kind of skipped over a lot of like the framing narrative, but like Billy works at a bank. She's apparently like the capitalist in town who hates poor people and stuff. And any, and she's trying to kill Billy's dog, all that stuff. But then she gets into her chairlift at home and the gremlins had, tampered with it so it like flies her out the window and she meets her untimely doom uh but all of the gremlins are all over town blowing shit up being chaotic evil till they all decide to go to a late night showing of snow white and like the theater's just full of gremlins singing hi-ho which is a very adorable scene i have to say (laughs) um i mean it's like getting joy out of capitalist horror so feels fitting for gremlins Right, right. Um, yeah. But yeah, so Zach and Phoebe torch the theater, kill all of them except for one Spike, who is, is his name Spike? Or Stripe? Stripe. 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 Yeah, Stripe, who is apparently their leader. They chase Stripe to a home and garden store where Gizmo saves the day by unveiling the shades in the garden section, causing sunlight to come in and kill Stripe before he is able to spawn more gremlins. Later that night, Mr. Wing returns, picks up Gizmo, and tells Zack that maybe one day he'll be ready for the responsibilities of caring for a mogwai. Then he wanders off into the snowy evening and the credits roll. <laughs> Gremlins! Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. I have to ask, Emily, even though this is the first time you've seen it, like, you had to have at least, like, 
encountered gremlins in pop culture before aside from just being like furbies but like gizmo i think is everywhere yeah but i just thought gizmo was a furby (laughs) like i i am really good at being totally out of the loop on things either i'm like really in the loop or really out of the loop not much in between yeah like i think i've heard i mean i've heard of gremlins a bunch but the entire plot was like all new I love it. Uh, I, I now I kind of want to watch Gremlins two with you at some point and just see what you. Whenever we do Gremlins two, we can have you and Jr. back on maybe or something um, to watch that one because I think that I'm really curious what you'll think of it since you are going into it hearing that wasn't good. Um, maybe they'll give yeah. you a good impression of it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. So, deep dive. Uh. I have a few things, but any anyone want to start, or I can go straight in. You can go straight in, and then Perfect. I I have like some stuff to jump in. But Perfect. So it has this film has been criticized, uh, rightly so, I believe, for some kind of racist mm-hmm. stuff. That's not so great. Kind of a sign of the times of the eighties, but also doesn't make it okay just because it was more acceptable in a pop culture time at that time doesn't mean that was okay then either but um there's a mystical chinese man trope which is kind of gross and like his whole character just serves the purpose of imparting wisdom and then kind of picking up gizmo at the end and stuff so not really a fleshed out character at all just this pure stereotype um also uh i didn't hear about this until uh researching for this uh, movie but apparently jonathan rosenbaum argued that the film compares gremlins to african americans mm-hmm. uh and patricia turner in her book ceramic uncles and satellite celluloid mammies writes that the gremlins reflect negative african-american stereotypes in their dress and behavior they're shown devouring fried chicken with their hands listening to black music break dancing and wearing sunglasses after dark and newsboy caps style common among african-american males in the 1980s stuff that you know as a kid i just like this movie came out before i was born so like i wasn't aware of any of that kind of cultural stuff it may have been Mm -hmm. picking up on by the time i watched it in the early 90s like it just seemed like these gremlins were being like fun and chaotically evil there didn't seem to be any other kind of sheen to it but i completely understand that yeah well and i the things that i noticed about it when i was watching was the black teacher is the first one to die in the film and he's like i think the only black character that's human in the movie um and so that from what i have gathered from horror nerds at church is also a common problematic trope in horror films that it's always like the person of color who dies first um but yeah and then they i mean they do do a great job of portraying um white people accurately (laughs) in terms of like randy the dad is like super (laughs) problematic white inventor guy who like goes in to buy this thing and instead ends up like telling mr wing all about this invention that he created and goes into the gas station and like 
this invention he created. And all of those inventions are terrible. Like, he doesn't have the brain to be an inventor. He doesn't have the good craftsmanship, anything (laughs) like that. But everything he looks at is, like, some way to, like, invent, some way to, like, make a profit. Everything has to be profitable, including the Mogwai, when he finds out that they can reproduce. And he's like, ooh, I must reproduce them. Which brings, like, a whole other area of, like, reproductive justice and the forced reproduction versus choice and particularly with our supreme court being as horrid as they are um yeah but that like all of that just kind of comes into this one spot yeah i um two two things quick first of all it's this movie going along exactly with what you're saying i feel like there's a lot in this movie that's kind of this uh criticism on capitalism and it's so interesting that they like set it during christmas so it's kind of like this christmas horror movie where it's there there's this whole little speech in there that phoebe Katz gives about like christmas not being Mm -hmm. a great holiday for everybody equally and then she tells this really weird urban legend uh um about but like tells it as if it had happened to her family which just as an aside is something that they make fun of in gremlins too. And I love that scene because uh, it is, it, does, it feels out of place in this movie. Cause it like is an existing urban legend that they wrote into the script here as this character's backstory. And, but then like in the second in gremlins too, uh, there there's a scene where she's talking, I think it's like Arbor day or something. They're like, Oh, this is going to be a problem to Arbor day. And she's like, I have really bad memories about Arbor Day. This one time as a child, like it's just this complete like making fun of it. So, so that's one of the reasons I love Grimmins too, because it kind of picks up on how weird and out of place this line is. But at the same time, what she's saying is very true and important. And Horror Nerds at Church even has a holiday survival guide about this: how the holidays are not a great time for everybody, and a lot of this mm-hmm. like forced consumerism and time around families and stuff, just hits people very differently and so i love that this movie kind of critiques all of that in a way and the other thing i was thinking is just i i agree 100 about like him being a really poor craftsman but an inventor but like i love the interactions between uh billy's mom and billy's dad mm. whenever an invention goes wrong like it's just like they, they're so cute together it's like there's so much chemistry there it's like believable and i just love billy's mom does i hope she has a name i'm gonna look it up because please tell me she has a name and this isn't oh. an example of uh movies not bothering to name the one of the female characters but um i literally just talked the, about that today in our christmas one episode for nerds at church Erasure. <laughs> yeah. She is Lynn. Lynn Peltzer. Okay, so Frances Lee McCain plays Lynn Peltzer. I just love her. Uh and like she has the best facial expression. She's able to hold her own against an entire batch of gremlins in her house before Billy comes home. Like she just seems pretty awesome and like the best kind of eighties mom, uh, I think. So Yeah. I think when uh, we were uh, watching this, we kind of commented on the whole inventor thing too. Like I, I'm bringing that back. Like uh, I feel like that was like a common thing with that time mm-hmm. period because we had a lot of movies where they had like the 
the dad who is always trying to make things more efficient and make a profit off of that. But um, I, I'm thinking of Honey and Shrunk the Kids. That's like mm. right. that one yeah. where Wayne Zielinski had all these options yep. in the kitchen. And the mom was like, I think, what was her name? Diane, I believe. Um, yeah. Like, she was always exasperated, you know, and like things were always falling apart. But it's just those two things, you know, like they, they're tied to me, you know. Yeah, I, so in my own, like, personal life, my grandfather actually, like, was a tinkerer and did, like, would have made a bunch of these things, would have made them successfully, actually made a garage door opener before those were a thing. And, but, like, didn't patent it, didn't, didn't make it to sell. He just, like, made it to make his wife's life easier when she came home in the car, right? And so, like... I have both the, like, white guy inventor who's terrible, right, which is this trope, and then I also have, like, my own grandfather who was really good at stuff and didn't invent a ton of stuff, but, like, there are patents and things that he did do for his work, but um, but also just, like, trinkets and gizmos and gadgets and, yeah, yeah, but not for capitalism. Yeah, yeah, I, that is so interesting. I, I think kind of to <laughs> this rampant individualism that capitalism has. Like, I feel like it's not like a lot of what's his name? Um, Randy Peltzman, uh, the dad, Randall Peltzer. Um, it's not like a lot of them are bad ideas. It's just like, he can't quite figure out the concept. It's like, well, if you're working collectively and collaboratively, you can, a lot of this stuff would probably work great because you'd have other people who would be skilled in areas you're not. But it's like this whole like individualism tied with this like capitalism and white notion of like, I can do all this myself. I don't need a community. I don't need support. It's just, I feel like all that kind of combines in this toxic masculinity inventor capitalist that the Mm -hmm. dad is. But then there's this different type of capitalist than we see with, um the yep. banker's son uh mm. Jer- and also mrs deagle which is a much more like i feel like the dad is kind of like harmless whereas these people are actually causing other people harm in their like rampant capitalism and stuff like that uh, yeah well and mrs deagle right like there's major like cis white woman tears from Mrs. Deagle too, of like, yeah. you, de- your dog destroyed everything of this, of my like precious plastic snowman, except for the head. And then the dog destroys the head. And then she's like, distraught, <laughs> pauses to like, without emotion, explain all of these things. And then goes back to like, oh, my poor heart. <laughs> and it's just like, this is so much a like, accurate parody of like cis white woman tears of like it is they know everything they know what they're doing it's all like yeah yeah not to mention like like always that way they direct their anger or like Mm -hmm. uncomfortableness like um she like turned it on everybody and like for us for help i think there was was it right outside of the bank but like um, mm. I don't know. Was it a mother yeah. and a daughter? 
they were they were like I mean they they were hot, you know, and she's just like, No, like go and you know, I'm not gonna give you charity. Like mm-hmm. you go and you make the money yourself and take care of your own problems. Which is totally like hypocritical of her, but I feel like again, that's like your yeah. what we see yeah. in today's society especially. It even says that you line know, to them. That I, I just think it's such like a uh, witty line that like it's hard not to laugh at but it's also like so cruel when they ask her for money and they're like but it's christmas please give us a little bit of money or please and then she's or like it's well, not even like know what to ask santa for which i just love that line even though it's so evil yeah and it's not even that they're asking her for money they're asking her to wait like two weeks until the paycheck before collecting the money that they owe her it's like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Speaking of capitalism, the other thing that I think is portrayed really well in this is the police. Yeah. Like, it, it just felt so accurate. Like, like, sitting there watching the police do absolutely <laughs> nothing when someone comes in with a legit concern <laughs> about potential future crime. But, like, all of the other places, they, they just, like, they are not helpful at all they don't solve it they don't help if there is one genre out there that has a anti-policing message like consistently it's horror because i feel like this has come up on almost every single episode this season when the police show up in a horror film they are always incompetent and never able to do their job and so this is another this one is played more humorously than in some of the other horror films we watched this season but like it's just it's so uh, even in home alone we were talking i was about just this gonna say home alone we were talking yeah yeah we we're talking about how like they just transfer um the distraught mom from one line to another and stuff yep. like this so yeah uh, and then when they do go, they, like, knock on the door. Nobody answers because Kevin is terrified. And then just walk away. Yep. Yep. I'll suck it up to a job well done, you know, move on to the next thing without, yeah. So I think um, with horror, I feel like that brings to, like, all of, like, the insidious things with um, humanity. And I, and I feel like that's why, you know, it works when the when you have incompetent police, or you know, um, very exaggerated, um, you know, characterizations of people. Like I just, I feel like that one of the reasons I like horror too, because it's just like, you know, it 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 more real than you know what a Lifetime movie or something like that, where like they whitewash everything, you know. Yeah, but anyway. No, it's real. I I feel like, I feel like one of the things that horror has to address, um, in every film, like in order to create this sustained suspense, is you have to address why the people who are the protagonists are not getting help, and so that means that they have to go out of their way to show that the people who are supposed to help Mm -hmm. are not actually helping and whether it's intentional or not i just love that like in some movies it's very intentional like i'm thinking of the new candy man that came out 
um this past uh this past year where like it was very intentionally like showing the police being uh outright racist to this black man and stuff like this uh whereas in a movie like this i don't think they're intentionally trying to be like anti-policing but i think it is still playing on those tropes of like showing like the people who are supposed to help aren't you can't always rely on them and Mm -hmm. um frequently they're not the people to go to in certain situations because they're not adequately trained prepared to deal with a lot of the situations that we are expected to go to them for help like when you have little chaotic gremlins (laughs) overtaking your entire town (laughs) yeah so yeah i do not mind that part right right that accurate portrayal is fine by me right right (laughs) um let's see uh something else i picked up on was this uh saint sinner kind of dualism Mm. how this is a very luther thing but it's not just (laughs) luther this idea that all people can be simultaneously good and bad and then we see we see some nuance in how most of the characters are portrayed but what's very interesting is the gremlins are these really or the mogwai are really kind of these cute things but they Mm -hmm. on the surface but in like this deeper level they are these I, I don't... I, is it, I, though? I don't know that you can say that the Mogwai, on the deeper level, are actually yeah, the bad that, ones. Like... Because that, that's why I pause, because I'm like... I think you're exactly right. They're they're not bad. Like, they're just, like, chaotic, and, like, they, they seem to not... They're not really... even... Like, Gizmo's not even really chaotic. Gizmo is, like... The chillest character ever. Gizmo is like neutral well, yeah. good. Gizmo, Gizmo aside, who seems to be like the it's but in Gremlins one and two. So I wonder if this is something they'll go into in the prequel series. Like, I wonder why Gizmo is the only one that is not is just like chaotic. I not chaotic, but it's just like neutral, uh, true neutral. But like, literally every other one is like chaotic evil. But it's like they're not being like they're disruptive. But that doesn't mean that they are like bad or they might hurt yeah i don't know they might also be it might be that like the drop of water and the spawn then become chaotic for the most part but like with most people if we are in a group and we're neutral in alignment and we're in a group of good people we're more likely to skew good. And if we're in a group of evil people, we're more likely to skew evil. And so it might be that, like, actually the majority of the gremlins, even that are spawned, are, like, not bad. But, like, Stripe is mean and so leads them towards evil. And the one that they take to the science teacher science teacher literally like jabs it with a giant needle so yeah you're gonna be mad about that like yep he just seemed to want to eat like that one was the quote-unquote fat one i guess like to play to play on those kind of role uh stereotypes in movies so another problematic thing we could get into but like he just seemed to want to eat and then he kept getting all these like jabs and pokes and stuff so of course he's gonna stab the person back with the (laughs) syringe yeah but uh there, but this so, so this is very uh 
good good to get into like what are their true motivations because it, it just seems to be like they want to have fun like they don't some of the stuff they do for fun is disruptive or hurtful to others but a lot mm-hmm. of it just seems to be like hanging out on a bar smoking cigarettes getting drunk whatever doing like flash dancing and stuff like that but um what's interesting to me though <laughs> is like there's this ontological shift uh is this thing we talk about in the- theological stuff about how like the core of your being changes over certain by some sort of event or catalyst will change who you are at the very core and so people talk about baptism for instance being this ontological shift or something like that uh and for luther it's something he calls a happy exchange creates this ontological shift within us but what i love about gremlins is instead of it being this like internal shift when they eat there's this like external shift from cute little furry animal to Mm. this scaly like uh i guess more lizard-like thing that is more so 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 i just want i find that like this transformation thing that they do so fascinating and of course it leads a question leads to the question of like is does gizmo what gizmo had he eaten after midnight also turn into one of those and if so would his personality change or would he still be the cute chill gizmo just in green lizard like form Mm, interesting i think it i think that shift puts you one further over towards evil so if you're neutral you go to evil if you're good you maybe go to neutral that makes sense I totally made that up, so I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I, I would love... This is why one of the reasons I want to... Uh, Gremlins 2, like, makes fun of this shift um, uh, a little bit. Like, it's directed by Joe Dante. So, a, a little bit behind the scenes quick. I probably should have said this <laughs> at the beginning. But, like, um, so, Joe Dante created Gremlin. Uh, Chris Columbus wrote the spec script but really steven spielberg and joe dante like turned it into the gremlins that we saw and know and love and then for um this second one because it was such a huge success and because gizmo was like the hottest stuffed animal toy everybody wanted gizmo before there were furbies there were like stuffed gizmo toys like the the studio kept begging joe dante to make a sequel and he kept saying no he's like why would i make a sequel i said everything i need to say at the first one and steve spielberg uh was kind of standing behind him and said was like supporting this decision but they eventually got to a point where they said we will let you literally we'll give you just throw money at you to do literally whatever you want just please give us the gremlin sequel so for Gremlins 2, Joe Dante basically was like, okay, uh, then I'll do whatever I want. And he basically turned it into a self-parody. And there is just so, I find it so hilarious and so fascinating. But like one of the things that he does is he like goes even further into this notion of an ontological shift by having one of the Gremlins drink this potion, which makes him develop like more intelligence. So he's able to speak uh Mm. he's able to speak and converse with people uh in english in ways that the other gremlins seem to have limited uh speaking uh verbal speaking ability uh so like this 
gremlin this professor gremlin is like wearing glasses and the whole thing and is on this talk show like being interviewed about what makes the gremlins act like gremlins and he goes into this thing about like going into their like the gremlins are just creatures that are uninhibited to follow their base desires and stuff like that like this really like nerdy speech about it but i just (laughs) i'm thinking about that in light of this and just how interesting that (laughs) what it i guess their transformation somehow releases some of their inhibitions to allow them to act more true to whatever their internal guiding sort of or alignment is i guess i don't know Hmm. now i'm like curious and want to watch gremlins too yeah we should it will be fun um what else do you have that was pretty much the stuff i went into What, what about you two Anything else? I don't know. I mean, I guess for me, it was just um, a lot of uh, references <laughs> to like uh, literature. Like, I I think there was a there was an entire scene where they had like um, um, they mentioned a doctor's name, like, um, and uh, it was a H.C. Wells character, and they also brought H.C. Wells again right. with the time machine. So there was this whole scene mm-hmm. where this chaos is happening, but behind this chaos is the actual time machine. Like, like did anybody catch that? Like, it like, yeah, <laughs> like it was at the um invent. It was at the inventor's thing. Like, oh. it was in the background when he was on the phone, and there was a guy in a time machine in one scene that cuts away, and the time machine was going. Everyone's looking around, like, where did it go in the next scene? A lot of cute little sight gags like that. I love it. Yeah, I totally like- missed that. That's awesome. So odd. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it was, um, they brought up one of the characters' name was Dr. Moreau. Was it like Moreau? Which is, a, a, which is a EC World, um, uh, story. Right, yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I just found it so interesting that they keep pulling all of this sci-fi. Like, so, so it's like, it's not like, um, like this horror is more of like sci-fi horror than like your typical like slasher or um you know uh paranormal or like what is that so it's just yeah which is also true to the concept of them being the creation of a mad scientist from another planet and then somehow transporting to to um this planet kind of definitely ties in with that sci-fi stuff yeah yeah and that that would make right. sense to why it becomes such a class like so classic and so beloved because it has all of those little ties that like sci-fi fans are used to like finding all of the little eggs and and details and stuff within it yeah i hadn't noticed there's a lot to be said jar about um how there are also uh all these visual references and cues to other movies like the flash dance scene uh that the one gremlin was acting out the dance from flash dance and then there was another one where uh the the robot from um what is that movie uh will robinson what is that lost in space a lost in space that tv show that that robot appeared in the back so it's just a lot of like really intentional kind of just background part of the tapestry of the film that's not even really called attention to these visual sight gags and references to 
literature to movies that I just really love. Um, that, that I think, to your point too, uh, Emily, is why people, I think this is such a classic because it has so, yeah. there's a lot of depth there and pop culture reference and stuff. Yeah, I think, uh, what, what, what is the, um, the neighbor, uh, you remember his name? Uh, yeah. talked about how um, he's like, um, kind of like an echelon, um, and like, uh, like he was in Twilight Zone. Um, yeah. So Dick Miller is the actor. I'm trying to think of his character's name of uh, Futterman, something Futterman. Yeah. Is that the one that the mom is brought over to? That Lynn is brought over to after, like, to like, just stay here, stay inside. I think so. It's the one. He's the one that uh, was at the bar, and then um, oh, Phoebe Katz told yeah, him yeah. to go home, and then he decided to walk home instead of drive. Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he brings in that what you were talking about earlier, Paige, about like the the legend mm-hmm. of the Gremlin with um their pilot and stuff like yeah. that he he brings that element because he uh, he kind of alluded to uh his time yeah. in the service or whatever so yeah i thought that was a neat tie-in too i also i so in our advent movie calendar which is still going through all 12 days of christmas so you can right yeah watch the christmas ones um as well but we watched today christmas chronicles 2 and that, like, the ways that the elves, when they get the elves bane, go into, like, oh. total chaotic mode, actually, like, has been playing because I just watched it right before this and watched Gremlins last night. And so, like, has been playing in my head side by side with the Gremlins. And, like, they also have a movie theater in Mrs. Claus's village where, like, at the end of it, once they get the, like, thing, the antidote to the elves bane they changed the marquee on the theater from bad Santa to elf. And so it's just like these little things that like, I don't know that anybody working on Christmas Chronicles too was actually like a big gremlins fan, but there were these like connections in the way that like everything descended into chaos so fast. And there was like the movie theater tie in and all of that stuff. And I was just like, this is fantastic. I they, don't know why they're the same in my head, but now they are. Well, the elves are also very the big point. Oh, and they've got the ears, ears yeah. and stuff. So I want. I would not be surprised if there was some Somewhere. Gremlins fans among them, because it, it it seems to be like some of those connections might be more intentional. But yeah, I, I yeah. love it. Yeah. It's a great, cute little movie. Watch Christmas Chronicles, both the first one and the second one, if you haven't. Um, our all of our listeners at home, they're on Netflix. They're so cute. Yeah, perfect they were, holiday movies. They were they were pretty cute movies. Um, one of the other things though that I noticed in the Gremlins movie is, and we kind of talked about this a little bit, and the ways that darkness and light come into play in terms of like how they function in the church and in Christianity for to support racism. Right, where we have this idea that darkness is bad and lightness is good. And so that becomes people with dark skin are bad, people with light skin are good, which is super problematic. Not actually true, not actually faithful. 
and is like so common. And even we did this right in the introduction of, I think, Grace, you talked about it, like being surprisingly dark for yeah. it being a family thing. And, and so like, that's something that I pay attention to a lot with movies. And there were like little ways that this both supported that trope and like challenged it because there is the like gremlins hate the light and therefore they're bad. But also like Gizmo also hates the light and Gizmo's not bad. Gizmo's cute. And there is this Mm -hmm. space where like it is in fact the darkness where surprises Mm -hmm. happen, where change happens and it's not the middle of the daytime. It's not the daylight where the changes happen and, um, and kind of what you were talking about pace with the saint center and the ontological shift, right? Like that shift happens at night and, and the characters become the truer potentially depending on your interpretation, right? Become truer to themselves. Um, which I thought was just like an interesting way of, of experiencing that in our, we talk about it some in our epiphany episode that's coming out soon, but for nerds at church, but yeah, the dark, dark and light. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I guess um, for me, I'm like, like, why are we so afraid of the dark? Mm-hmm. Like, that's just like a thought. Like, um, is it, is it because it represents the unknown? Like what we don't understand? Like, like I just yeah, you know. we get taught so quickly to be afraid of the dark instead of to be curious about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's so, like you're saying it's so embedded in our language because like when yeah. I, I I pay attention to it, especially in like church circles, like the ways we like you're saying too, Emily, like the way we say say the stuff um or and align Jesus with light and all that stuff, but when we talk about stuff like you, you referencing to me saying in the beginning, I'm thinking like, yeah, but then that, that like the way we talk about like dark humor as like a genre of film or like dark horror as this genre of film and fiction and stuff, it just the ways that like is so deeply pervasive and our entire, the way our language is even built to the point that it's been talked about like the english language is the language itself is has some intention around race in it as the english language is being developed into modern english that we speak today these there is it's not an accident that some of these uh things kind of developed in the ways we say it so it's just mm-hmm. it's just so hard and pervasive and it's one of those things this is i'm going to prevent myself from going on a tangent because this is the type of thing that pace can do way too much on this uh podcast Define but like too I, much yeah well um but yeah i just want to um avoid going too deep into like luther's notion of sin because this is the direction this really is a tangent if i go this way so but i just want to say like the ways in which we are embedded everybody um is embedded in certain structures like patriarchy like mm-hmm. uh and, and it's different different parts of the world and stuff but like in the western uh northwestern hemisphere of the this planet like most uh everybody in this 
in the United States and Canada and Mexico is kind of embedded in this like Western westernized notions of race and racism and white supremacy, which plays out different for different communities. But it's like we are all kind of embedded in these kind of sinful structures, which we cannot fully escape from. And Mm -hmm. that even goes into our language. So even when we are trying to come up with new terms and new ways of thinking about this stuff, it's really hard when you're embedded in the muck of it. So I just want to say like um, to our listeners out there, like when we get into this stuff is like, we are recognizing the ways in which it's an impossible thing, right? Like we can't Mm -hmm. fully ever escape it. And yet we're still trying to be conscientious of it and work within ourselves and our communities to work towards something that may not be attainable, but at least keep progressing on a goal towards more equality and more, and um, deconstructing these systemic ways of oppression and harm to other people. So that yeah. was my shortened version of what could have been a very long tangent. So I'm well, sorry that that was already a little bit of a tangent, but. Well, and that brings up actually one of the other things that I noticed, um, Pace, which is the intention versus impact piece of the story that especially at the very end, Mr. Wing says to Randy, the dad, I told you with Mogwai comes great responsibility, great responsibility. And then Randy's like, I didn't mean it. And it's just like, that does not matter. Right. And it's (laughs) similar with any system of oppression or um, being part of any non-oppressed oppressor class that like it doesn't matter that you didn't intend to cause harm the fact is that you caused harm right it doesn't matter that he didn't Mm -hmm. intend for gizmo to reproduce and have chaotic evil babies that (laughs) trick people into feeding them and then run rampant around the town the reality is that that is what happened and he has a responsibility for those that happening as the person who bought it um and also like there's no way that grandkid was actually gonna sell a mogwai to him like that's that's i have never seen a relationship dynamic like that where someone is like the wise elder particularly in Chinese culture and then the like grandkid who loves them and is like working in their shop it's just like yeah, sure. I'm going to go behind your back and sell this thing that you said is like really dangerous. <laughs> Not yeah. going to happen. But um, yeah. Yeah, I just liked that little glimpse into reminders. Impact over intent. And in this, like, he's not apologizing. He's not trying to make amends. He's not trying to make reparations. He's not trying to make anything right. He's trying to get out yeah. of responsibility by saying, yeah. I didn't mean to, which is a very different, like, to say like, oh, I meant to do this differently. Here's an idea for how I can make amends. Would that work? Or is there something else that I can do to make things right? But yeah. 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 Um, the There is a piece that we kind of t- dance around. I, I see in the notes that Emily, that you put something too that I think ties in with this, which is this notion about commodification of mm. like this this intentional i i really think it is this intentional critique of capitalism and the ways in which we commodic commodify 
each other, commodify the earth and environment, uh, and turn that into kind of a means to an end instead of treating the earth and the planet as an end in, of an in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So, so that's definitely something kind of going along with the dad trying to get out of responsibility. He, of course, is going to try to get out of responsibility and not treat the res- not treat it as response, not understand the gravity of the responsibility of caring for Mogwai if you see it only as a commodity or only mm-hmm. as a gift or trinket to buy your child as opposed to something that is a living breathing creature in need of care and these very specific sort of guidelines for it to thrive and survive the the note that i had was um that the mr wing is really clear that the mogwai are not for sale so even the fact that randy tries to buy them kind of betrays the reality that he is not ready for that responsibility but then um his son, Billy? All yeah, right. Billy. Okay, yeah. So his son, Billy, doesn't try and pay for him and is willingly giving Gizmo back, sadly, but like willing, like knows that this was not, <laughs> this was not done responsibly. Um, and, and yet like has this relationship and potentially like presumably Gremlins 2 involves him getting Gizmo back. Um mm-hmm. And so then it's it is this reality that like just like the Mogwai, the best things in life are not buyable. You can't buy the best things in life, which is not the same thing as money doesn't buy happiness because there's a certain amount of money that is necessary to achieve happiness in the world we live in because otherwise you cannot eat. And I don't know anyone who is happy and not eating. Um, but But there is this like, the the things and the treasure of Gizmo, which is recognized like Gizmo is recognized as a treasure by everybody, the grandfather, Mister Wing, Randy, everybody is like, oh Gizmo, so cute, so new, so weird, so whatever, and yet is you can't buy it, and it's not until after Randy says, hey, maybe we could make money off of it, that then. Later, they eat after midnight and turn into gremlins and, like, run around and cause chaos. So part of me wonders, if he hadn't have said that, what would have happened? Ooh, yeah. I mean, and of course, if he had just listened to Mr. Wing all along, none of it would have happened, too. (laughs) Right. So, exactly. Like, yeah. Uh, (laughs) What about you, JR? Anything else you got for this one? Mm. Hmm. You guys pretty much said, you know, I agree with what you said, so. Yay. Well, I guess we're to uh, rating the film. So we, this is a special Christmas episode. So even though it's part of season two, I don't think we need to rate it out of machetes. Let's do something fun and Christmassy. What do y'all say? What should we rate it out of? 10 out of 10 what? I mean, we could do inventions or gremlins or Santa hats. Those would be my three ideas of what we could rate out of i like santa hats what do you say jr santa hats yeah okay so out of 10 santa hats especially because gizmo is so cute and wearing a santa hat in one of the scenes <laughs> That's true. uh what would you rate this movie and 
do you have even though it's kind of like mild more family friendly violence is there a particular kill or even more broadly a particular moment that's your favorite in the film should i start while i give you all time to think yeah okay yeah (laughs) um i there's so much of this film that's nostalgic for me so it's hard to like separate it out to like rate more critically but uh, i want to say an eight out of 10 Christmas hats. It is just so adorable. Such a part of my childhood. Captures like the early 80s so well. Like even as a little kid, just kind of growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, just a lot of nostalgia around the way that the town looks and feels and stuff. My favorite kill is the death of Mrs. Deagle. It is a funny kind of scene, but also it's just so great when like rich people get their comeuppance mm-hmm. in a satisfying cathartic way. So I have to say so I have to say it's that scene for me. Jared, do you want to go next or do you want me to? You can go. Okay. Um Mrs. Deagle has the same kind of chair that my great grandmother had. So I also love Mrs. Deagle's kill because I remember riding <laughs> up and down the stairs in that chair and probably would have loved if it all of a sudden went ridiculously fast um (laughs) as a kid but i would give it probably a like five and a half out of ten santa hats because it was like cute i'm not super into horror so like it's never going to be my top and then there was like some pretty problematic stuff but then it also got like took on capitalism and cops maybe six out of ten santa hats yeah love it Okay, JR. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, uh, Middle of the World seems to be like four and a half out of five, three and a half, you know, because it is like there's a sentimentality with this film being mm. like a childhood thing. Like, you, it, it isn't until you get older you realize how problematic <laughs> a lot of the, like, the, the um, themes are. But um, I also, like, I want to add that the whole um, backstory with um, the um, CPK's father mm-hmm. is, like, in the simile, like, that is a very interesting <laughs> detail to add and um, adapt for a kid. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think I, I can't think of anything else that tops yeah. that kind of story. Like, yeah, it's just bizarre, but that's why it's like four and a half, like, like five. Yeah, I, yeah, I, um, it's just so like tonally different from the rest of the movie that it's just, it's one of those things that if you're watching it just casually and then that part comes up, you're like, wait, what kind of reaction? So it's like, so, so for me, I, I, I agree, and I, I think that's also kind of why I said, and, um, the sequel why joe dante like i think was winking at the audience when he had her <laughs> have a similar reaction over i don't think it was arbor day but something similar kind of minor holiday to um be like yep i know this was weird but it's okay to be weird real life's weird so mm-hmm. like it's true and bad shit happens to everybody even in kid movies bad shit can happen so no need to shy away from it i guess yeah Okay, JR, any upcoming projects or anything you want to clue our audience into? Uh, any Instagram handle, anything like that? Um, 
No, I mean, um, I can't even think of it off the bat, but I do have an Instagram where I, uh, I show my artwork. I have, uh, a lot of, um, monster-centered, uh, monster and sci-fi-centered artwork. Um, I'll give you that handle so you can put that when you, uh, post the episode, for sure. I was just trying to find your Instagram handle to see if I could pull it up quickly, but I can't. So I'll make sure we link it link in the show notes. I believe <laughs> I believe it's pop culture monsters, but I don't I think there's an underscore there somewhere. Yeah. But that that's about it. I don't really have any projects going on at the moment, but uh yeah. We heard a little bit about our sibling podcast nerds at church but any other things you want to shout out to uh emily i mean that's the main thing going on that and queries at querying to ease.org uh, which are both of those go with like the revised common lectionary so um it's particular church nerdery in particularly queer ways but yeah otherwise not a whole lot I found it, so I can officially say on air too. It's pop culture underscore and underscore monsters, oh. pop culture underscore and underscore monsters. Sweet. <laughs> nice. Um. Well, I guess uh, uh, the only thing coming up for HNAC is we have one more episode of this season, which is Midnight Kiss with River Cook Needham. Uh, and she and I talk about how she is becoming my horror apprentice, kind of, because <laughs> this is uh, this movie. She realized how much she loved, and it's really fun. So definitely tune back for that. And it ties in with New Year's Eve, which is um, the episode comes out the day before New Year's Eve. And then, of course, we have our Patreon. Even though our season two is coming to a close, we have our Patreon stuff. Three episodes a month coming up on Patreon. Uh, one is a tube, and then the two are the double feature co- movie commentaries. And then on our main feed, we'll still be dropping the mini-sodes. So you can stay tuned for that. So we'll still be around even in our uh, in-between season gap. Awesome. Uh, that's it for our show. Our theme music was by Matt May, who, along with Pace, edited this episode. Horror Nerds at Church releases every Thursday, Please comment, rate, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support us on Patreon and get access to exclusive movie commentary episodes, BooTube episodes, and more bonus content by going to patreon.com slash horrornerdsatchurch. It's only $5 to sign up. Cheaper than a large coffee at your favorite overpriced coffee store. Cheaper than a large coffee at your favorite (laughs) overpriced coffee store. Follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Horror Nerds at Church and Twitter at HNAC Pod for all the latest updates about upcoming films, news, and other announcements. Until next time, remember, just like Mogwai, the best things in life aren't for sale. So hold them close. Aw, perfect Christmas message too. Merry Christmas, everyone. Not the meaning of Christmas for the record. Oh, right.
What is the true meaning of Christmas, Pastor Emily? The true meaning of Christmas is that God chooses to dwell in the the bodies of the dispossessed. And if you're not showing up there, then you're missing the entire point. Christmas is not about family. (laughs) Love it. Well, bye, everyone. Bye. Happy Christmas.